Bill Kunkin is a PhD student of theology and religious studies at Villanova, as well as a high school theology teacher at a local Jesuit high school in Philadelphia. He is at once deeply knowledgeable and deeply open-minded. I find him time and time again to be refreshingly considerate of the complexity of his field, as well as down to earth about some of the most highbrow theology I've ever encountered. He's balanced, measured, and fiercely interested in what he does. It's for all those reasons that I'm so excited that he agreed to sit down with me today. Bill, happy Friday. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, this first one is a little long, so I right. apologize in advance. You teach both a world religions course to freshmen and a church history class to juniors. Am I, is that all you teach? I'm forgetting. Yes. Okay. Yeah, world religions and church history. Okay. I want to start with the freshmen. My understanding of the course is that it's something of a survey. You sort of do the major world religions over the course of the year. Yes. Now, the interesting thing is it's a Catholic school. And in that survey, you also teach Christianity. One of my favorite quotes from Joseph Campbell is, is his like joke definition of religion. Yeah. He says, mythology is other people's religion. He was a comparative mythologist. He says, mythology is other people's religion. And religion is misunderstood theology. And we could probably have all sorts of fun, I think, trying to tease out exactly how that may or may not be true. But I think having read a good deal of Campbell, I think he might say something like, or I think he might mean something like mythologies become misunderstood when they're interpreted not as symbols, but strictly as facts. In the survey course, you teach other people's religions. When you get to Christianity, do you teach it more like a myth or more like a series of facts? And do you sort of, do you teach it in the lens of them being in a Catholic school? Or is it, also, is it almost like it could happen anywhere? Yeah, so I try to approach um, Christianity um, pretty broadly. Because um, first off, we have to acknowledge that um, the Christianity that they're used to is going to be very conditioned by uh, the locale that they're in. So even you take Catholicism, for example, Catholicism is a global um, tradition. Uh, it's going to be expressed in many different ways across the world. So when you talk about Catholicism in general, you're already talking about a concentrated group of um, Christians. Hmm. Unpack that layer even further, now you're going into American Catholicism, which really is its own thing entirely. Yeah. Interesting. So um, you have to kind of unpeel those layers um, and get to the sort of the broader um, Christianity. And that's what I try to do um, in world religions. Um, they're going to get a more concentrated um, Catholic approach, you know, in their next three years at, at um, the prep. So I sort of intentionally try to make it as broad as possible. And we, we start off really approaching it as it begins, uh, really as a messianic sect of Judaism, and then slowly evolving into um, what we understand to be Christianity today. Do you feel the need to do that same sort of unpacking and layering with other religions, or is it that those other religions are so foreign, you don't have to sort of go through the different kinds of Hinduism? So we do do that as well. Like, for example, you mentioned Hinduism, um, and even the term Hinduism is something that comes sort of later on in the tradition. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, it, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I mean, you, you go even um, to India today, um, and um, you describe Hinduism. It's simply what is. 
I mean, this is this is the original, um, really different faiths that exist, um, or maybe faiths is not even the real world word, um, or I should say the proper word, but um, the um, variety of different belief systems that exist in India. I mean, I, I even intentionally I, I call the unit Hinduism, but I also kind of put it in parentheses and say traditional Indian religious um, systems. Because there's there's different Hinduisms within even that broader category yeah, yeah, yeah. of Hinduism. I would imagine if you taught a, a really specific Catholic class, right? I, I can't even think of an elective. Um, oh, what are what are the words you like? Um, liberation theology. Yeah. If you if you taught a a, a rather niche, it of course would could kind of explode open into a variety of different things you'd be interested in. And even in teaching that, especially at the high school level, you'd be up against, like, the constraints of time, but also the constraints of who's in front of you. And there would be things that you would want to go into that you just really can't give in the audience. Even more so, I, I imagine that has to be the case, where you're not doing a niche class, but a sort of huge survey. How often do you find yourself... I used to have this, in, in high school I had this AP bio teacher, and I, she was one of the first people I knew was really smart, because before I could probably even tell you what I thought smart was, I knew she was smart because all of her answers were, yes for now, right? And it would be like, you know, something about respiration, and she'd be like, yes for now, and we'd be like, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, ADP sometimes also turns into ADP, and we are like, whoa! She would just sometimes peel back the layers and let us know that there were, you know, layers to this game, so to speak. I have to imagine that happens constantly for you oh, yeah. in, a, in a survey course. Yeah, I mean, it even happened today. Um, so we're, we're looking at Judaism now, and we're going through um, different texts within the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and um, we're in Job. Um, and uh, we just began it um, the other day. Uh, and so we're reading... Um, this dialogue between um, God and uh, the adversary, at least it's translated in the work, the adversary, and they said, well, wh who is this adversary? I said, well, th this is um, English for uh, Satan. Interesting. Uh, this figure in the Bible. And they said, oh, do you mean the devil? I said, well, actually, um, <laughs> you know, Satan is, is originally a, a, a different concept. In mm. some sense, um, they will at least in the sense that there are different historical origins for the figure Satan, for the figure uh, the devil that we would uh, call, and uh, this figure Lucifer. They have three distinct historical points of origin. Eventually, in Christianity, these get brought together. Mm. But um, you know, so that's just sort of just a little thing that was brought up together um, in class today, and you know, you have to clarify this. But then also, I mean, you want to go into it. Yeah. I mean, even that sentence would be infinitely confusing, I feel like, yeah. to, to a kid. Yeah. And, and um, I think what you do in a survey course is um, open the door mm. and say that there there is more here. Yeah. Um, and there's more to explore. And, and perhaps one day you will explore those things. <laughs> But, um, huh. you know, I'm here to uh, let you know that it's there and yeah, let you know yeah. that it's an option. Yeah. That's fascinating. It, it sort of 
channeling that high school teacher. I'm. She would sometimes this woman who I'm thinking of the, the AP bio teacher. She would sometimes be like, "Well, we're gonna call it ATP or whatever. We're gonna call it this for now." Do you find yourself probably solely for the purpose of time, primarily, being like, you know what, we're going to call this, just so we have a common language, we're going to call this God. The same way the devil has a very complicated origin, we have to sort of fall on a common language. Do you find yourself doing that, and do you also feel like that common language becomes comfortable, which is great, but then also potentially, um, I don't know if misleading, but oversimplifying? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, sort of moving over into the other course that I teach, uh, church history. I mean, this, this is something that I kind of have to do um, frequently because, you know, I'm trying to cover 2,000 years of sure. human history <laughs> yeah. in a semester. It's kind of difficult, especially with high school. Yeah. So, um, yeah, th there are times where I have to use these sort of overarching labels. Like, for example, we were talking about... Um, the Byzantium in the Latin West yeah. the other day. And, and Byzantium is, of course, an anachronistic term. Um, the Byzantines didn't call themselves Byzantines. They called themselves Romans. Yeah. Because they were, I mean... So we went back and named... Oh, we, we call them Romans now, or we, excuse me, we call them Byzantines now mm. to distinguish them from the people who usurped the Roman name in the West. <laughs> Interesting. Um, but at the, you know... Historically speaking, these people would have considered themselves the continuous entity that was the Roman Empire. Yeah. So I use this term Byzantium. I mentioned that maybe once or twice to the students, but I use it to distinguish between that and the Holy Roman Empire, mm. which is, again, neither holy nor Roman nor an <laughs> empire. So, yeah, I mean, I have to use these terms because these are this is the historical language yeah, yeah. that that was passed down to me through through my own academic uh, lineage. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're in oversimplifying of uh, something that is is pretty complex. That's fascinating. We'll, we'll come back to your church history course in a question, but going back to the survey and the survey course. We've spoken before about you and I, the differences between Eastern and Western religions. And, and no doubt you bump up against this in your survey sure, course, yeah. and I'm sure as you build... Oh, I just remembered why. Let me come back to the, the difference between Eastern and Western in a second. That church history class. Mm. What do you do on the first day of class? First day of class... The, the very first day of class, we go through the syllabus... And then I ask them to tell me, you know, again, out of the topics that I list in my syllabus, yes. which one is, is sticking out for them? Okay. Which one are they most interested in? Um, and surprisingly, there there is quite a bit of a variety. I mean, you sort of expect the usual suspects like the Crusades or sure. the, the, you know, the plague. Okay. This is going to get a lot of people's interest. But, you know, then again, you have some of these people who are like, you know what, I'm, I'm really interested in Anglo-Saxon England. Sure. And Celtic Christianity. I want to dive into that further. And I'm like, okay, cool. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's it sort of, I, I try to let the students to some extent direct. Right. You've got 2,000 years. <laughs> yeah. Where we're going to go. I got a lot of 2,000 years. I got a lot of 
heavily translated primary sources that I sure. share with them. So, um, interestingly enough, I've incorporated more and more um, actual theology, I would say, mm. into the course. Uh, and that's really student driven. Yeah. What do you mean by actual theology? So, I mean, work that explores the question of God. Interesting. Um, I think, it, it, to some extent, there there's some universality here. Um, when you're reading sort of a historical document that has all of this um, contextual background information that you need to know, it sort of takes you out of the field. But when you're talking about sort of, you know, Aquinas' five proofs of God or, you know, Bonaventure's journey to the mind of God. Now you're, um, you know, exploring something that is, to some extent, relatable to you, mm. because this is, you know, sort of a, a timeless, yeah, yeah, work. It starts with a question. Yeah, it's it starts with a question, and you know, we uh, approach um, God in in various different ways mm. through these questions. So they, they end up enjoying it. And we have some great discussion from it yeah that's so cool i i only ask that because i imagine it's it's just it's amazing to think about two thousand years spread out in front of you and being like well what am i supposed to hit you know in all this i almost feel like there's no doubt you tell them and you joke right about oh we have to cover two thousand years in a year or whatever right yeah i i would love i've never told religion in my life you know this but I almost picture if I had to do that and you were sort of in my, you were able to provide me with all the theological facts. If I wanted to get that across to the kids, I'd be like, I want you to write a, a, a one page paper summarizing your whole life and like watch the kids squirm under the challenge of trying to summarize the major points of their life and then being like, we have to, you this this is 16 years that you're struggling to try to summarize it. We have to do this with, with 2,000. You can't even imagine how long 2,000 years is. That's wild. Back to Eastern and Western. We spoke before about the differences between Eastern and Western religions, blah, blah, blah. In what ways are the mystics of the Western religions, um, in what ways do they sometimes act as a bridge to the Eastern traditions? And, and I, I warn you, I'm sort of, or I know that I'm sort of baiting you. Um, maybe, maybe even just like explain what a mystic, like h how we use that word. Because I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure if I'm using it always correctly. Yeah, I mean, it's there. The, 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 this is sort of an ambiguous term, mm. right? I mean, um, you know, sort of um, the very um, crude definition would be, you know, someone who encounters God or has an encounter with God. But what does that mean? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and what are the parameters here? So, I mean, we, we talk about a lot of different mystics in our, in, in our course. Like we approach Hildegard of Bingen, uh, Marguerite Perret, um, Julian of Norwich. And the interesting thing is the three mystics I just named, they each encounter God and their understanding of how they encounter God is going to be fundamentally different. Um, for Hildegard, she's going to understand her encounter with God as God literally working through her to develop the Scivias. What is the Scivias? Her, her sort of seminal piece of work. Okay. Right? Her seminal piece of theology. So her claim, and she, she becomes um, this sort of major rock star figure 
mm. of her time period, despite the fact that you know she is a woman. What's the time period? Um, the 11th century. Okay. So right, really, in the beginning of um, scholastic theology. I mean, it's not, it's not even fully developed yet. Um, she's writing a little bit before, uh, I believe a little bit before the establishment of the university system. Um, but she takes on this authoritative role because she's able to um, make the argument, essentially, that um, what she's writing down, these aren't her words. Mm. These are words that are coming directly from God. So she understands her encounter with yeah. God in a really visceral way. Um, Marguerite um, is going to have sort of a, a different conceptualization of this. Um, and then Julian's going to understand her encounter with God as, as God revealing certain signs to her. So it's sort of, the, the, there's um, a less direct uh, approach that she takes, but the point being that these are three renowned mystics that are going to have probably a different definition of what a mystic is going to be. Sure. <laughs> right. So this is why we have this sort of broad throwaway label of, well, it's it's one who encounters God or has this sort of <laughs> sure. supernatural uh, interaction. Interesting. What, what does that say then that, well, may, maybe I'll not assume the answer to my first question is there do the western mystics or you know east or west do they sometimes act as a bridge um philosophically to the other well i i think if not philosophically i would say in the form of contemplative practice yes hmm. um contemplative prayer um which is sort of what we would call it in the in um, sort of the the western christian tradition is going to have um, parallels with meditative practice in the East. Um, and those parallels are both implicit, but they're also explicit, especially when you get into modernity and you begin to see these minds coming together mm. and uh, interacting with each other. Um, Thomas Merton being probably the most famous figure that um, Catholics are familiar with. Um, this is someone who um, studied in depth uh, Eastern traditions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in some way, in that sense, they are a bridge. Uh, and in many ways, the, the pioneers to uh, interreligious inter dialogue. In other words, they're approaching their counterparts in the East decades before you see um, Nostra develop and these different. Um, statements by the church that says well maybe we need to reevaluate this whole no salvation outside the church thing <laughs> really yeah and maybe we need to uh adjust our um position on interreligious dialogue because before the 60s it's 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 pretty non-existent really then merton was that recent yeah merton merton is sort of on on the cutting edge of this um interesting what yeah. was his uh was it like seven story mountain what is that thomas merton who merton wrote what was his what's the book that i would see around school yeah, all the time yeah, i'm trying to try to think. Yeah. look it up real quick you know who loves thomas merton 
The Seven Story Man. Yeah, yeah. Seven Story Man. Yeah. Who? I was gonna say Cherry. Okay. <laughs> I, I've never read it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I don't have a follow-up question yet, but we'll come back to we'll come back to the mystics. You also teach, as I mentioned, a course on church history. In some ways, that class could be thought of, at least in my mind, on the one hand, the history of how the Bible came to be, which is an enormous undertaking intellectually um, to teach that or even think about that. And then on the other, how a group or different groups of people chose to interpret that book. Yeah. As you've studied church history, are there things in the accepted doctrine that sort of give you pause or that bring you face-to-face with the realization that it was a series of decisions you and I spoke earlier about committees and, like, how clunky they can sometimes be. Yeah, And do you think a deep dive into church history makes it easier or harder to have a sort of traditional faith? Yeah, because I think you have to come to this realization that when you're talking about the establishment of what we would understand to be the canon, right? What 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 makes up the Bible, right? Sure. And how it comes to be in the, in the Christian tradition. This, um, I mean, I, I don't want to diminish historical accuracy because I think this is at, you know, the on the minds of, of some of the church fathers. But first and foremost, they're concerned about theological consistency. So if the text doesn't match their conceptualization of God it doesn't get in so that right there gives you sort of this pause to say well wait a second they're not concerned about or or, or they are concerned about historical accuracy it's a secondary concern so what is what is the implication there yeah (laughs) about the text itself right I mean it seemed pretty enormous but then you also have to realize these guys are in the fourth and fifth century they have no way of verifying what's historically accurate and what's not beyond um, sort of um, trying to date the writing. Right, and yet, and yet, there's a conservative impulse that I don't that I don't necessarily think is wrong. Like the whole Chesterton fence thing. I think that's what it's called, right? If you come to a fence, the sort of conservative mindset is to think that the fence was there for a purpose, right? And the sort of more liberal mindset is to, to sort of laugh and be like, well, why, would, why do we need this fence here? It's not separating anything. I guess the way that I'm hearing what you just said would be that there would be a tremendous amount of s- historical conservative momentum to weave in the things that that shouldn't entirely be disqualified only because they were in the 4th or 5th century. But, but but we're no doubt limited, right, in not not only historical, being able to, to validate historical reference or accuracy, but, but probably, I don't know, many other important things like like what you mentioned as, a, you know, the, this sort of not being able to be redeemed if you're another faith or something. Yeah. But I imagine there's a tremendous amount of, of the current faith that's sort of left over. Or got like carried through. Am I am I am I wrong there? Yeah, I mean, there is continuity, um, for sure. And 
you know, in, in, in many ways, when, when you're looking at the, the history of the Roman Catholic Church, um, one of the things that I sort of repetitiously say to my students is when you're talking about tradition, you're not talking about the static thing. Mm. Right, you're you're actually talking about something that changes pretty dramatically over time. Uh, that that's really what that word tradition means. It means something that sort of adapts to a changing world and changing world perspectives. So oh, so interesting. Because I think of, the impulse is to assume it's the opposite. Yeah, the impulse absolutely. In in our current culture, the way tradition is used, if yeah, someone is traditional, they're, we they're always play that, football on Thanksgiving, <laughs> which is <laughs> yeah, just not the case as it developed. If mm. if we maintained the teachings that we had even 40, 50 years ago, uh, it would strike our sensibilities um, pretty harshly. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, I think we need to acknowledge that this is a very dynamic process that does change. With that said, um, the word tradition also implies that you are taking something from the past right. and bring, carrying it over as well. So, when you do want to go through this dramatic change, what you have to do is reconcile with what has been established beforehand. So that's something that yeah. um, can be, I think, both a preserving process, but also um, a frustrating process for someone who says, well, listen, why can't the church change on X at this point? Hmm. Well, it's because it has to reconcile <laughs> um, this sort of broader tradition. Right. Yeah. So, so sometimes the desire for continuity might just be for continuity's sake. And that, if I'm hearing it correctly, could, could occasionally be limiting. It can be limiting, yeah. Or, or, or it can be, in some ways, um, inhibitory to change. Hmm. Um, or inhibiting change in some way. I'm jumping around a little bit. I'm realizing we're only on question four. I'll come back to this this thread in a second of, of church history interpretation. Yeah. Uh, why does it seem so difficult to interpret the New Testament the way we might interpret the Old Testament or Greek mythology or something? I think my illustration of this is always if I hand a kid Sisyphus or Prometheus, um, they're you could just see they're like, they're so attuned and turned on to the idea that this isn't a real person whose liver is getting ripped out, and, or they're not actually pushing a boulder. This is sort of symbolic, right? Why is it that we seem to sometimes freeze up? We, the, the kids, but then also adults, when interpreting the New Testament, where if I hand them Job even, Job, they might be like, well, the adversary represents this, or, you know, but then, but then suddenly in the New Testament, all that interpretive power comes to a screeching halt. Yeah, because I, I don't think we tend to read uh, the sort of narrative that we have um, uh, of who we understand to be uh, the divine incarnate in a way that is a form of an epic in some sense. Yeah, wow, that's and, cool. Um, in some ways, I think we miss 
the fact that it is in some way it does have those qualities in it as well um that's not to say that there isn't anything sort of new going on here in the new testament and there are definitely you know colleagues that are their, their concentrations can can speak to that in a greater depth than i can but um mm. for example the nativity story isn't an, is an implanted origin story um even even um you know today it's not understood to be a story that is interpreted literally because hmm. we have two different nativity accounts that don't sync up with, i mean we, we all put it together on christmas eve in a nice little pageant and we yes. <laughs> you yes. know yes. present it as it as it's all one succinct narrative but it's not really um and these narratives are inserted in uh, and you sort of say well, why would you insert this narrative in well, because if you just start off the narrative with some thirty-year-old dude, sure, preaching, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna be satisfactory yes. to that audience. You yeah, need yeah, yeah, yeah. an origin story because every messianic figure in that time sure. period has an origin story. And still, right, Harry Potter with the scar, the, you know, there's always going yeah, to be like you have to have yeah, it. It's yeah. so interesting. So yeah, I mean, the nativity story is it. it is one example of how there is sort of this quality of an epic yeah. embedded in. Yeah, it almost feels like it was retroactive. Like the nativity story could have very well been retroactively like this this epic capital E epic bow sort yeah. of put on top of a story. Yeah, it's so interesting to indicate that hey, this is the important guy. Yeah, that 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 is in it's connected to um this davidic um messianic tradition hmm yeah interesting and yet that you're up against that every day the kids they 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 lock up in front of the that epic and they don't see it as an epic they see it as maybe even like a some kids you know on one of the spectrum probably see it as like a like the events in a newspaper well this happened in a some place at some time you know what's interesting is um, I think that would would have probably been the case maybe um, oh, a decade, two decades ago. Yeah. But what I'm experiencing now, and, and this this was sort of interesting. I mean, I, when I first started teaching, I was actually pretty surprised at the the lack of biblical literacy. Uh, in some ways, you could say, well, you know, you're horrified. You got to start from the the bottom up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't assume anything anymore. Uh, that they that they have any sort of foundational knowledge of scripture. Yeah. Um, but you would have had to break that down anyway. Uh, I was going to say on the flip side, though, it's less right. to deconstruct, right? Sure, I sure. mean, um, yeah. You know, there's sort of the, there was this focus maybe twenty, thirty years ago. Of, oh, you have to deconstruct. You know, this sort of mm. um, CCD narrative. Yeah. And you just don't have that anymore. You're dealing with someone who is, Whoa. in some ways, a, a tabula rasa. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's like the, the the ignorance begets openness. And that can be inviting. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, but it also can be um, something that uh, can be sobering for you as well. Because you have to acknowledge that you might be the religious authority. <laughs> in the student's life which 
wasn't necessarily the case uh, two or three, or certainly wasn't the case two or three decades ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're, you're the religious authority in my life, Bill, so it, make, it would not surprise me at all that you're the religious <laughs> authority in their life. Um, okay. As you've studied church history, do you ever get the sense that some decisions... Uh, all of these questions are masks for my instinct, and I'm just trying to temper my instinct with your knowledge. Do you ever get the sense that some decisions were made out of a shared fear for the individual's power to interpret? When I think of some of the Gnostic Gospels, for example, I've been torturing you with my recent interest in them, and, and why they might have been purposefully excluded, I can't help but wonder if early church fathers, as you sometimes refer to, would be afraid of how those texts would be interpreted. Not necessarily that they were wrong in any important sense, but that in some passages they might risk being misleading. Isn't that true, though, about maybe any of the Gospels? Um, they all risk interpretation. Oh, this is, I mean, so one of the things I, I, I often say to students, too, is when we, when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about a book that, I mean, maybe not a book, but a collection of works when throughout history, um, for at least it's the first 1,500 years it's compiled, it's not intended to be inter interpreted by the masses. You don't read the Bible. Oh, I remember you saying <laughs> this to me. Yeah, yes. you, you, um, huh. you go and you have the Bible presented to you. Yeah, and, and I, I've always heard before that the reason that the, the Bible at Mass is so... Sure, yeah. Sort of This like, is the Word of God. Right. But it's that concept of this is the word of God, and it's being translated to you, first and foremost, in a language you don't understand. Mm. So more often than not, uh, the Gospels most certainly are being read in Latin, mm. which um, you you certainly don't read because the literacy rate is, is significantly low up until the early modern period. To say nothing that they're already being translated, right? Yeah, to say nothing that, yeah, they're, they're already translated. Uh, and number one... You don't even speak the language. Hmm. So you the, the, the word of God takes on this sort of mystical um, hmm. quality to it that, yeah, I mean, we've certainly lost since the invention of the printing press <laughs> and the advancement of literacy. Literacy. And, and you told me before, not to put you on the spot, that you are unpopular opinion. And this is sort of like you're just, I think you're kind of playing it some Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's tongue-in-cheek. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it really does, like, it suggests the power, um, and I'll let you say it, but it suggests, at least in my interpretation, the power and the danger and maybe just, like, the enormity of the task of doing this on our own. Oh, yeah. And, and sorry, you're... you're well, you, you just look at... Um, well, hold on. Your, um, your unpopular opinion... That's, oh, that's my the, unpopular opinion is uh, maybe we shouldn't have mass-produced <laughs> the text. And perhaps um, the explosion of Bible studies that we see develop, <laughs> uh, you know, again, being using uh, sort of a, a colloquial contemporary term, maybe this wasn't a great development. Right. <laughs> and I, maybe I, there were consequences to that. I, I think if I remember your joke correctly, <laughs> the way I originally heard it was like, 
the printing press was something like the worst thing that ever happened. Probably to... the worst thing that ever <laughs> happened. Yeah, to the <laughs> to, to the interpretation of the, the Bible. interpretation of the Bible, at least. And I'm sure that um, biblical scholars would probably agree with that. <laughs> Interesting. And all, of course, there's like a there's like a there's a strange instinct that's like no, like give everybody the chance oh, to sure. discover it on their own, and and yet. That's sort of what we have. And that's that's one of the few things. It's this melting pot of confusion. <laughs> I was gonna say it's one of the few things I will actually get some pushback on, some significant pushback on from students. They'll be like, "Well, I don't know if I want the Bible, um, you know, transmitted to me by some authority." I mean, they, I think they have this sort of, um, you know, this sort of robust um, American concept. Sure. Of, um, you know, fearing the magisterium, fearing, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. And yet they've never the, read it, and here they are actually getting it from you. Yeah, well, there's, the <laughs> irony is abound there. Right, but, right. Um, it's the fact that they can pick it up at any moment, right, that has this special quality to it. Yeah. You know? And, and of course, you know, here I find myself infinitely confused having just picked up the Gnostic Gospels. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I should add that even the image of the Bible today... Um, the way it's approached today, in some ways, I think we've actually begun to revert back, actually, to that mm. original image of the Bible serving as this sort of icon rather than uh, a text itself. I, I took a Bible and pop culture class um, about a year and a half ago, and um, around the time we were taking it was when uh, Trump had held the, the whole did the whole Bible stunt. I don't remember uh, this. In front of the, the, the pro, during the protests. Okay. Um, um, they, they sort of tear gassed the crowd and, oh, and geez, sort of yeah. went okay. out. Yeah. yeah. They coming back. Yeah. And held the Bible. So the thing is, oh, uh, yeah. it's not like he began to read scripture. He just He's held just the Bible. Just the Bible. And so, so it's, I think we're getting back to this image of the Bible itself having some sort of authority too. So Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Because that example seems like... It seems like a pretty bad thing, Seems right? like that. Yeah, so, so, you know... Especially with the tear gas in the background. Yeah, and, and so, so you could have argued that, um, you know, perhaps this is sort of the negative side effect of when you don't have knowledge of the text, and you use it as a weapon. Right. So, you know, on the flip side, I could see certainly pushing back against the idea that, um, well, because it has this authority in our culture today... Um, if we don't read it, if we don't understand it, it mm. can be weaponized. Yeah, what a strange authority. Yeah, right, great point. What a strange authority it is. I'm being flooded with these memories of, like, these memes of, like, if only he opened the book. Yeah. Drama. <laughs> Funny. Okay, I'm reading a book now. I, Of course, you need no introduction to, to my recent interest, but I'm reading a book now by Elaine Pagels, who I'll have a speak... Oh, I'll have a chance, rather, to speak with in a few weeks. Um, she, I think, if I understand her correctly, um, Hensler was saying something about maybe her being connected to the Jesus Seminar. I actually don't know. I have to confirm that. But um, I thought I first came in there because of the Gnostics. And then, um, you know, she has a, mo a more recent book on the history of the devil, uh, sort of historical deep dive into the book of revelations but she's a religious um, historian 
she entertains the possibility that I've been sort of just binging some of her lectures. She entertains the possibility that Jesus might have had, like a lot of traditions, a sort of public message that we get uh, in the synoptic text with parables and that kind of thing, right? And and even even there, from my understanding, he sort of alludes to it being like, I, I speak this way because it's not the whole picture, but it like leads you to it. So sort of having having a public message or in parables and then a more esoteric message. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, being a historian and being interested in Gnostic text, she talks about, you know, the so called whatever he might have whispered to, to Thomas, the three things, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. A more esoteric message, something more akin to other mystical traditions. She compares some of the Gnostics, um, the Gnostic suggestions rather, as having been something like the Kabbalistic teachings. And you and I talked about this briefly today. The, the Kabbalah being, you can help me understand this, but being sort of like mystical Jewish text. Yeah, the, sort of the yeah the mystical Jewish tradition. Right. Yeah, and, and like fiercely contemplative, correct? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that's sort of a, a broad generalization, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would, I, w- I would agree with that. Yeah, so this is a hell of an introduction, but the question at the end is: In what ways was Jesus himself not a Christian? <laughs> and what what are we supposed to do with that? So, um, well, I'll try to pique your interest in another writer too, uh, Sheila McGinn, who is someone who I I, I do um, use or utilize a lot. Um, in sort of the beginning sections of, of church history when I'm talking about this this messianic sect of Judaism that evolves into um, Christianity. She actually uses the term Jesus movement um, in, in her text when she's talking about this early um, history. And that's mainly because we have to acknowledge that this movement is one of actually several messianic movements within Judaism. So the Jesus movement others tried. Others tried it and and others were contemporaries of Jesus. Right. And I and if I'm under, if I'm linking this now, you you alluded to this I think with John the Baptist. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean J- John the Baptist it's it's surmised by by some scholars was perhaps a a rival messianic figure to Jesus who gets written in to the narrative and, and maybe just tease out how you use the word rival there so the, there were a uh, just was, another one or were they a, actually rivalistic well um, I mean there's there's no sort of direct historical record of any of these figures interacting with each other um, or at least contemporary record of any of the figures interacting with each other but um hmm. What we, we do have evidence to suggest that there were corresponding movements that were rising around the same time. And essentially what happens is that movement gets subsumed into the Jesus movement at one point. Um, and that um, narrative of, of who we understand to be John the Baptist is written in hmm. to um, the Gospels. Or at least the Gospels as we um, recognize them. So, this is something that is, you know, complex, but um, also important to emphasize. Because 
the Jesus movement changes dramatically when it spreads um, into the Greco-Roman milieu. And this is when we see the development of what scholars refer to as Pauline Christianity, right? So when Paul brings the message into the Gentile world, this is when things begin to really pick up, right? And can you just, just remind, I went to CCD, so I don't actually know everything. What uh, a Gentile, strictly speaking, is... So any, any, anyone non-Jewish, right? Okay. So initially, we're talking about a specific group of people within a broader label of Messianic Judaism within Second Temple Judaism. Hmm. So, eventually, what will happen is this movement will begin to um, coalesce with uh, the wider Greco-Roman world. And there'll be sort of initial disagreements within the Jesus movement over whether we're going to allow Gentiles or non-Jews to come into the movement, sure. and if we do allow Gentiles or non-Jews to come in, I mean, this is the disagreement between Paul and Peter, right? If we allow um, non-Jews to come into the Gentile movement, do they have to become Jewish first? And the prevailing answer is going to be no, <laughs> right? The prevailing answer is going to be that actually there's a new covenant that's been established now. Mm. They can skip right to Jesus. And we can go right, yeah, we can, we, which essentially means you, you don't have to keep kosher, you don't have to get circumcised. So all yeah. of these other um, previous um, status markers that would, hmm. that would designate you as a Jew no longer ring true. And this is when we begin to see the split. So around the same time, too, we see the sack of... Um, the second temple and this is when we be, so in addition to this sort of this this parting of ways between the communities we also see sort of the sack of the temple Jews are expelled from Jerusalem so they're they're exclusively in the diaspora at this point um, sort of scattered across um, at the, the same time that the Christian... At the same time that we begin to see, yeah, the, the Christians take get... on their own unique So identity. I always thought the yeah. exile was, like, long before that. Well, so, well, there's two destructions, right? There's the first temple that's destroyed. Is that, um, and that's where we get, like, the Book of Zohar. Yeah, and this is, yeah, and this okay, is where right, we get sort of right. the, the Babylonian Sorry, exile question. period. Okay, all right, makes sense. And then we have the second temple. Yeah, I'm thinking Okamokam Emmanuel. Yeah, okay. that's also destroyed. Is that that's the second? Yeah, and then the Kamal Manual. I feel like that's the first. No, no, I'm saying I'm saying the what I was referring to earlier. The that event is the destruction of the second temple. Okay, I need a whole I need a whole PowerPoint lesson on the temple destructions. And, and that is well, there's only two. Okay, so. I will. <laughs> well, however many slides you need, I could. Third signifies the end of the world. So. Okay. We're, we're a bit iffy on, on building a third one. But. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We <laughs> If the third one collapses, the world ends, so let's not even build the third one. Or or, or if it's built, okay. um, uh, according to some um, apocalyptic oh, readings of the text. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, or, or some interpret the second temple as, oh, you know, man. this is the kingdom of God coming onto earth. And... Okay. So I sort of interrupted you. There was, after the... 
Sack attack roll, destruction, which I need a history lesson on later. But at the same time, the Pauline Christians, so that's the yeah. Christians according to Paul. Or, or, or the Christian communities that are being founded and in some ways directly influenced by the, this figure that we understand to be uh, St. Paul, Paul right. Tarsus. And, and he, if I remember the names of these letters, was primarily moving into like a Greek world, right? Oh, yeah. No, so... so Corinthians. Well, yeah. No, the, so all the other ones. He, he's, he's explicitly preaching um, to the Gentile community. He doesn't have any success hmm. in the Jewish community in the diaspora. That's the other um, factor at play here. Um, so we, we get these um, accounts of Paul trying to preach to the Jewish community in the diaspora, and they sort of, they sort of run him out of town. So the people that actually end up um, finding his message appealing are going to be those um, primarily on the margins to an extent in the urban areas in the Greek-speaking Roman world. Yeah, whoa. Okay. So so I read that the Immortality Key, and it's by a prep graduate. Yeah. And it's all about the sort of the pagan continuity theory, the idea that Christianity came from a bunch of other religions and crashed into a bunch of other religions, and mm. you know it's now the amalgam of that, right? What? Um, and he sort of essentially writes about this is Brian Murray's work. He writes about Paul, sort of like preaching, or the figure, you know, as you said, the figure that we call Paul. Those letters that we read being addressed to Greek-speaking parts of the world that would have been practicing other mysteries, whether they be Dionysian mysteries, and by mysteries I mean like essentially like pagan, religious, spiritual, and, and his argument ultimately psychedelic um, practices, right? That, that he, Paul, would have appealed to, again, this is, Brian Murasky's words or argument, he might have appealed to, and and actually the marriage of those things may result in some of the imagery of our current faith. Like he plays with the whole like wine thing, possibly being, you know, emergent from like a Dionysian cult. Well, yeah, I mean, w without a doubt, um, I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> There's sure. a lot of claims sure, there. Sure. Yeah, but um, I, I will say this, that... Um, so, so, he, so, sorry, just, just to lay in that plane, he was sort of arguing that that Paul would have appealed, sort of as exactly as you said, to these, like, urban, outskirt... Yes. ...Greek towns or metropolises, right? Yes. That would have had their own practices. and sure. that And that instead of... Right like no nothing's gonna like no wave is just gonna come in and take it completely over without also being married to the thing that it crashes into well the other interesting thing is too we have to understand that um yes there's paul right but there's other people who are spreading the same message who are also competing with paul paul wins out um you know in this sort of, how are they competing if they're spreading the same message that they're they have different interpretations. They have different approaches, right? Yeah. There are some who, I mean, I mean, Paul's going to say that, you know, you don't have to um, embrace these certain rights. Not every person in the Jesus movement is going to agree with this. 
Mm. Right? I mean, just, just we, we sort of have this impression that, um, you know, the, the, Paul is sort of the only missionary, right? Right, and of course, that could not world, have been true. Which, which, yeah, I mean, factually, we understand couldn't have been true, but is also concocted by the church fathers at a later date as well. The advantage being, forget about those other guys? Standardization. And also, primarily due to the fact that, I mean, in, in writers like Evagrius Ponticus, he simply just referred to as the apostle. Mm. And you just understand that this is Paul. Interesting. So Even there's, though there's something actually, like triumphantly correct about Paul. Yeah, there's something that he, he holds an immense amount of authority. So much so that when they're establishing, and this is centuries later, when um, Pope Nicholas is writing to Emperor um, Michael III in Byzantium, and that sentence alone that you could remember that and pull that out of your mind is pretty impressive. Well, but when he's writing to this emperor, uh, he's trying to establish sort of this 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 preeminence of Rome, right? What why the the bishop of Rome should have um, supremacy over over the uh, the entirety of the Christian Church, right? And again, with the understanding that we're talking about the Christian Church in the Latin West and Byzantium, just around the Mediterranean, we we don't even consider the people that are in the Far East <laughs> that are also um, practicing a form of what we would call Christianity. But um, when he's making this argument for papal supremacy, uh, you know, the first is going first thing figure he's going to bring in is Peter, right? Uh, according to the um, sort of historical narrative, um, Peter winds up in Rome um, and is crucified there, upside down. So, Jesus. why upside down? Well, he he didn't want to be crucified. He didn't feel as if he was worthy enough to be crucified. Uh, this is again the historical narrative. He wasn't worthy enough to be crucified um, the same way as the divine incarnate. So he actually requests yeah. in the historical narrative that he be crucified. It has to be worse. Upside down. Shades of misery. <laughs> well, you probably die quicker. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, to some extent, you could you could say. Um, oh, my God. Not to advocate. Sure. <laughs> but, right. Um, right. Or, or say that, you know, Peter got off easy. But, um, so one of their main arguments is going to be that, um, you know, well, Peter dies in Rome. Right, and his successor is going to be you know the next bishop of Rome. So we are successors of Saint Peter, right? And Peter is the only one who's actually appointed by God incarnate. But he gets crucified. Peter. Peter gets yes. Crucified? Peter gets crucified. Yes. But he's the he's the father of the he's the guy with the the keys, right? Yeah. Crucified. So. <laughs> so who wanted that job? <laughs> well. <laughs> A lot of people. Oh I mean, again, you know, the, oh my the, God. the early cult of martyrdom is is going to be. Well, I mean, there's a, a wider story behind that as well. But um, <laughs> yeah. So they're going to make the argument of papal supremacy by saying, okay, well, Peter is the only one who's actually appointed by God directly, which means his successor in is in his lineage, meaning. The Bishop of Rome is really the only office that's instituted by God directly. This gives the office um, this sort of 
preeminence or supremacy over the entirety of the Christian churches is the argument made in the ninth century, 700 years later, right? Um, but even as they're making this argument, yeah. I'm going to connect it back to I Paul. I feel like some of this is still maintained, though. <laughs> Even oh yeah no absolutely uh, you, you, I'm picturing the smoke you go out. you go on um, the Scavi tour in Rome uh, I was there a few years ago they'll take you down to the catacombs and you'll see the um, you know the supposed bones of Saint Peter underneath Saint Peter's basilica well we don't know for sure you right. know with absolute certainty that it's the bones of Saint Peter but we know that it's um, a person who would have been around the same age <laughs> whose name was Peter <laughs> who, who was Palestinian who uh, or was was um, who had lived in Palestine um, who happened to die in the same exact spot the historical narrative says that Peter died okay so this is <laughs> wild yeah so but you you go down to the catacombs and you you see the bones of St. Peter do you think as a as a yeah, I so know you're not a historian. So, but do you think you're looking at St. Peter's bones? Well, there's there there is an ethereal feel sure. when you're going oh. into the catacombs. Yeah. Um, but to bring it back to what I was saying about Paul earlier, in that letter, this sort of seminal moment where it is one of the first times you you see the um, Bishop of Rome directly arguing for this authority over the rest of the church. Not only does he mention Peter dying in Rome, but he also mentions Paul dying in Rome. Paul didn't die in Rome. No, he did die in Rome. Okay. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he's... That, that we probably know with even more certainty, right? Because we don't even need to rely on the historical narrative. We know that Paul of Tarsus was a Roman citizen, which means if he was executed, he would have had to have been executed in Rome. Roman citizens always had to have a trial in Rome. And they were beheaded and not crucified? Um, yes, typically. Yeah. Okay. So. So I think I missed your punchline. What? Sorry. So. Not because. So Paul dies in Rome. Yeah. And this is going to be another argument because Paul dies in Rome. The Bishop of Rome is his successor as well. Oh, interesting. So not only do we have the authority of St. Peter. We've got Paul on our side. We also have Paul. And you sort of say to yourself, well, why isn't St. Peter enough? Well, because Paul had been, for centuries, this figure. I mean, the guy. when we talk about the apostle, Peter was an apostle, too. Interesting. But we, but it was understood that, no, we're, we're talking about Paul here. So absolutely indebted in, to the um, what Christianity came to be. And it, obviously, the, there's always a difference between how he was presented and, and what he might have actually been, but he's presented certainly as being like sort of the tip of the evangelizing spear. Oh yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the first problem that Paul has to deal with, um, being chased out of being friends with, well, I guess he wasn't friends with. Well, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of practical. He issue. falls off his horse. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, gotta um, get back up. He's blind. One of the, one of the first problems he um, encounters is uh, he has this apocalyptic expectation. What does that mean? So this is another fascinating thing. <laughs> this early movement 
understood the second coming was imminent. Hmm. So you have to read <laughs> the text in some ways, I would argue. Um, the, the sort of the original Gospels, um, perhaps with the exception of John, uh, which comes a little bit later, um, you have to read it with the idea in mind that the writer has the expectation that the end of the world is coming. Like, soon. Yeah. It so, might be this guy bringing it. Paul has to rebrand that. While he is um, engaging in this missionary work. Because you begin to have this problem of um, people are converted. I'm going to use, you know, converted in a very loose way. Um, but they embrace um, his message. But then they begin to die. And the question then comes, okay, but it, 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 does that mean that person's not going to be part of this apocalyptic moment where we're all brought up into heaven? Mm. Um, so eventually Paul has to reconcile with the fact that maybe the second coming isn't as imminent as we're expecting it to be. Maybe we're here for the long run. Right, and so much of his message that was probably so, not, if not appealing and captivating, would have been... And now it'll be it's imminent. Yeah, well, absolutely. You have people on the margins who are being told, don't worry. Right. <laughs> like, you know, the good times are coming soon. Um, and the, you know, when that expectation um, is not fulfilled, he has to adapt his message. So probably... How does he adapt that? One of the most remote... Well, you have to come to this understanding that Maybe the second coming is it. And now what do you do? Well, you need to set up these sort of practices, this belief system. You need to begin to write things down. So this is happening really with the same... Okay. Because originally you have to think, um, they don't write this down immediately. Right. So, so, the f so they actually begin well. to write these down, and Paul being an extremely prolific writer in his own right, intentionally because it's like well, we gotta write some stuff down now because other generations that come after us might need this now because hmm. the original expectation is you don't get write anything down we're all gonna uh, yes yeah, we're all gonna be yeah apocalypse is coming and, and apocalypse of course is a double there's a double entendre to that right apocalypse we sort of understand to be the end of the world but it also means revelation hmm. Right, this this sort of revelatory component here. With um, in some ways, you could argue that the initial apocalypse is is the writing of the text itself. Um, um, need to tell you have to tell me what that means. So I mean, revelation itself, right? Our our text itself. Mm -hmm is that initial reveal, right? It's, it's, it's the word being transmitted in, in, in textual form. Interesting. So that's like... Which didn't exist. Reveal part one. Yeah, reveal part one. Or, or revealing of what is, you know, stay tuned. Mm. Interesting. 
I sort of alluded to this before um, we even started that, that I could probably interview like you like at least 10 times. So I'm sorry that, that I'm, I'm not following all these up. I can't wait to continue to think about these things. Last question. I, I may have told you this before, but I, I had on one occasion the strangest chance to sit down with a with a practicing Sufi and what I could only describe as a as a sort of uh, uh, like a Hasidic mystic, a Jewish mystic. I sat down with both of them, both gentlemen in about their eighties. Should have had a Jesuit thrown in there. Well, I was, I was. Or a Trappist monk. Well, they, well, they were saying that I was representing Catholics, and I said, "Well, that's, you know, I'm probably doing them all a disservice." The Sufi, who was very interesting, as you could imagine, he would always. I, I, I spoke with both of them one time, but I spoke with him for a regularly for about a year. He, he used to always tell me that religions are like husks. That they sort of need to be shed at some point, and of course he he had his own practice, right? But he that was always his. And our own friend, Father Steve Sorovic, has said before that he said this in a talk to my freshman: spirituality is like a bridge. Even the word religion, religio, means linking back. Yeah. What do you think religion is linking us back to, and do you think? All of the major religions share a common well water, so yeah. to speak. So, so, so you're going to get my eco-theological eco bent now. Okay. Because I, I do think there is a, a point in which we um, emphasize our, our, our text so much that it, it almost becomes a form of idolatry in and of itself. Yeah, cool. Right. That's interesting. Um, you know, I, I had a professor. This is his words, not mine. But it's sort of we, what we we tend to have this fetishizing <laughs> of of the, of the text, right? Yeah. Um, and what we lose sight of is first and foremost the the primordial text is our encounters with nature. Hmm. Uh, and you get this even alluded to in the text itself. When oh for sure all the prophets go into the wild they go into the wilderness yeah, yeah. so I'm so obsessed with that where do you find God well you find God away from everybody in else. the untamed mm. wilderness so yeah I mean I think that is where that is our connecting back to um, what was before I mean you have to think. The first um, people, or at least that we would what we would call the modern humans, there's no written language. So how are they encountering what we would understand to be the divine? Mm -hmm. Through the natural world, through encounters with um, biophilic encounters with nature, and it's uh, can be a frightening encounter. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to always tease that anybody who who will will sort of clamor on about back to nature has not gone camping recently. Yeah, probably not. Right, yeah. right. Not that I'm not that I'm against 
some sort of return to a more natural whatever. But yeah, it's just kind of tongue in cheek. But nature can be horrible. Oh sure. And talking about a revelation, like realizing that like really nothing except for your family wants you alive, right? Like that is it's just not a promise as soon as you step out of any sort of city. Well, I mean, we even have this, you know, understanding, I think a robust understanding that this is what it means to encounter God. Going back to the sort of the, the mystic interest that you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Encountering God is in some ways dangerous. Mm. It's risky. Right. Israel, he, he who wrestles, doesn't he break his hip or yeah. something? Hmm. And yet, there's this very modern... I'm picturing so, some of our beloved co-workers who are incredibly gentle spirits. And there's this there's this idea, of course, that they embody that God is, is of course, very gentle. Yeah. We have to look at human nature. <laughs> that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, um, or human history. Or they, and, that, right. and that is pretty anthropocentric in and of itself. But even if we look at um, the world itself, the world is, is violent. Right. There's, uh, there's of course, the... The um, the like, the sort of orosporus, the sort of snake eating itself. It's like the life takes life kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that in in so many ways was like a an ancient idea of God was that like life is this vicious cycle. Um, Mercia Eliada, the anthropologist. Yeah, I have this this Eliade. He has this bizarre book about shamanism that I've read. He talks about... He's like the grandfather of religious uh, studies. Oh, I love it. He's amazing. He's amazing. Aside from his his, uh, flirtations with fascism. His what? (laughs) His some flirtations with fascism. Does he? Interesting. Hungarian, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Um, I got into him because of his stuff on rituals. I always thought that was very interesting. But in Sham, he has this book called Shamanism, um, and it's there's all these really cool passages about different shamanistic initiation practices, and all these neat accounts of you know these shamans like later in life talking about now of course you know they're they're essentially like poets right in the way that they describe these things, but they would describe sort of there was one that was sort of I think like an Inuit or a an Eskimo-like shamanistic practice. And of course, you know, there's the whole origin story, but once a initiate is identified, which is itself sort of a whole practice and usually dependent on like a psychotic break of the individual. Once that person, the community essentially is like this, this kid has a problem and the shaman then takes the person, takes the person out. And in this one story, he builds like a hut on this like frozen lake, and he essentially leaves the kid there for like, like weeks, right? Comes every now and then, gives him like a little bit of meat, and it becomes like this like, I mean, talking about like a Trappist monk, like it becomes this like deep meditation, right? And all of the shamanistic accounts that Eliade talks about ha- have these things in common, but and this had this in common that like they're visited by their ancestors, they're kind of stripped of their meat and they just become their bones or their soul or something. Um, But this one in particular was like, 
the shaman would sort of whisper, like, I, I'm not going to take you out of this until you hear the voice of the universe. And, and of course, you know, eventually the kid hears the voice of the universe and the voice is like, don't be afraid. Right. Which of course, like, you know, the, my Catholic upbringing is like buzzing with all the don't be afraid thing. But then I'm like, suddenly there is, yeah. Like the, the wild is awful and dangerous and scary. And this kid is just out there. Right. And the wind's whipping and that kind of thing. And yet in his moment of revelation, he's told or you know feels or whatever not to be afraid so there is this like weird gentle undercurrent which sorry i'm taking over here but the i'm fascinated by the gospel of mary magdalene oh yeah and the very first she really had a whole hit piece on her in the middle ages though well i'd like to write her defense (laughs) Mary yeah. questioned her master, at the end of an eon, will all matter to be destroyed? Jesus answered, all of nature's, all of nature, sorry, its forms and creatures are interrelated. All will be returned to their original source. And I can't help to sort of cobble these things together. I can't help but think that there's something in that Eskimo story. It's probably not Eskimo. Excuse that. There's something in that native story that is comforted with his the inevitability of that return that that gentle voice is that this is actually the cycle and whether or not it happens now or happens 30 years from now there's something very natural about this process and you need not be afraid oh yeah i mean you know sort of and ending with um sort of what we're covering now with job i mean what you say what should what's the point Right of the narrative, um, you see this person who, um, you know, is, is faithful to God yet suffers like disproportionately, like oh, you know, yeah. it's and and the text isn't written in a way that it's it's not trying to attempt to answer the problem of evil. You know, this is one of the things I tell them is don't be disappointed. We're not really going to get an answer to theodicy here. Why? Why benevolent, all-powerful God allows for evil, but we do get a response to how we how we deal with that, right? How we mm. process that. But essentially, the message is disinterest, mm. not a checking out, right? We you know we sort of have this association of of what disinterest means, but disinterest in what comes next. Yeah, almost like a stoicism or something. With the understanding <laughs> that you know that you know that the, the, there's 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 some different worldview and and there is a will right i mean with stoicism we have this sort of double determination theory but um a disinterest um in the sense that yeah maybe you'll get rewarded but maybe you won't right but i think in job you you have that whatever you just said about stoicism you have you have the two warring you know you have the adversary and god sure and sometimes he gets you know one sort of being in control and the other, you know. Well, yeah, but the adversary serves God in the account. Yeah. I always interpret that to be something like, you know, that there are parts of you that will be served by your nature and there are parts of you that will suffer from your nature. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, of course, that's, you know, reducing Max to a bullion cube, but... I see it something very dualist in, in that 
Job story. And the disinterest is that sometimes, sometimes, you know, you have to sort of steel yourself to those currents. Dualist or or perhaps pointing towards non-duality. Yeah, which, you know, I'm fascinated in. (laughs) Which, Which I think Mary Magdalene points to there. Which I'm realizing that you and I need to eat, but can we can we promise and when, when I listen back to this, can we pick up the next time with with maybe starting about why the Gnostics are thought to be dualists? Okay. Because yeah. when I read them, I, I see the opposite. Really? Yeah, I see Gnostics. like a mystical non-duality. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so, so can we pick up there? Yes. Bill, I cannot thank you enough for this. Absolutely. Uh, again and again, I, I feel like I could have this conversation. Thanks for some version of this con- yeah. and, and in fact, we do have this some version of this yeah, conversation. Yeah, pretty much, right? Like yeah, yeah. once or twice a week. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Beautiful. All right, thank you very much.